tonight on Dark Sky 12. You know, one thing we have a lot of here are adventurers and people who talk about life on other planets and other possibilities that are very intriguing to the mind. And we have a lot of educators as well, a lot of teachers. So tonight I am very happy to have Andrew Nyberg from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga's English Department calling in to talk about a whole host of things. The first half of the interview focuses on his book that is for sale. Brand new book coming out and various educational issues. And the second half, if you've come here for the UFO talk, deals with possible intelligent life out there. The show Lost. Remember that? Lovecraftian Harbor. Jeff Vandermeer. A whole bunch of other stuff. So, candles are lit. It's nighttime again. Thanks for tuning in. Here he is, Andrew Nyberg. So here's the deal. Here's what I've got on my list, on our show notes. I've got talking about your book, talking about our favorite poets, the value of poetry, pandemic teaching, awake and engaged, a little thing I call fun with Rate My Professor, where I'm going to read you some of your Rate My Professor things <laughs> and, and have you respond to them if you want to. You don't have to. Then we're going to talk. Hilarious. We're going to talk about the Lovecraft problem. And then UFOs. So I like it. Andrew Nyberg teaches creative writing and other things at the English department at UTC. And I'm happy to have you on. Thanks, man, for coming on Dark Sky 12. You've been making the rounds lately. You've got a book coming out. Tell us about it. Well, um, the book's called uh, The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks, and it's uh, being put out by Finishing Line Press. It comes out in March 2021, but right now it's currently in its pre-sale period, and so uh, trying to sort of get the word out there about it. Um, you know, if nothing else, poetry is definitely um, a very personal medium to sell, I think. Uh, I think a lot of people are more likely to buy poems that they've experienced and directly connect with. But um, the collection uh, is one I've compiled over about 15 years, actually. Um, And that does that's not as like um, as an enormous amount of time working on it as it might sound. Um, I have also written multiple novels that I'm working on in the same yeah. time, another collection of poems that I'm working on in tandem with it. Um, so, you know, it's really just, it's called from poems that I wrote over the last 15 years. A lot of previously published ones also, correct? It, it does have, uh, yeah, it's got, a, I don't know, at least uh, about a third of its length has appeared in various journals over time. Nice. Now, I got to ask, I want to know about the title. That's a cool title. The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks. Is there an explanation of that title or not? Oh, there definitely is, actually. Um, Now, in the simplest sense, it comes from the title poem, um, which is also entitled The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks. It's uh, 
the longest poem in the collection. And um, it's set on a place called East Island, uh, IST Island. It's the mm. um, northernmost island in the Dalmatian Island chain off of the coast of Croatia. Uh, my mother mm. was born in Zadar, Croatia. And um, in 2003, uh, we took a, a visit out to um you know, about out to Croatia, I saw Zagreb, Sadar uh, split, and then we spent a couple weeks up on East Island. And East Island's a pretty cool place, actually. Um, aside from just the simple awesomeness of being a very old-fashioned uh, Mediterranean semi-tropical island, um, you know, complete with the white stucco walls, the red tile roofs. Um, geographically, it's pretty interesting because. The island itself is two small mountains, and I'm going to use the term mountains loosely. Uh, you know, we're talking mm -hmm. kind of like lookout mountain-sized mountains, not mm -hmm. like, you know, real mountain-sized mountains. Not the knock lookout mountain, but I grew up in New Hampshire uh, in the White Mountains, and yeah, they are a little yeah. taller. And then I'm sure people from Colorado are looking at both the White Mountains and Tennessee and be like, yeah, yeah, right. I can't even stub my toe on those things. A good friend of mine out in Colorado calls them foothills. Like everything yeah. in the Appalachian chain is just foothills. <laughs> yeah. Uh, technically, you know, according to a lot of standards, Mount Washington is literally the only mountain in the Appalachians that can yeah. even be considered a mountain. That's right. Um, but no, uh, the, the island is two mountains joined um, at, at the Spurs. And uh, the, there's a village and um, on one mountain, there's a small white church um, that was actually built there um, primarily so it could be visible to the neighboring islands so that they would know there was actually a church there. It was pretty much uh, during communism when religion was fairly discouraged. Um, so it was a way to sort of advertise themselves um, to at least the surrounding area being the northernmost chain. It was the most in the chain was the most isolated. Mm. Um, then on the other mountain is an abandoned Soviet military barracks. Um, it has uh, mm. various uh, formerly residential buildings, a series of artillery pits um, and a good number of underground bunkers. And um the first thing um, that kind of struck me about the island was just the almost unavoidable symbolism of having the military um, topping one mountain and then the church topping the other. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But then the barracks themselves are fascinating for two reasons. One, um, the uh, artillery pits uh, you know, are surrounded by kind of fortified walls, and um, they still have the firing maps and coordinates barely visible on the walls. Hmm. So you could literally see the exact firing angles to um, deliver an artillery shell to one of the neighboring islands. Um, but then um, also uh, the barracks have now been overrun by the island's goat population. There's literally yeah. about a hundred yeah. goats that live in the barracks. Uh, honestly, the place is just absolutely yeah. covered in goat feces. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also a pretty fascinating, um, atmosphere as a result. You know, you have this old military relic that changed hands numerous times over the various conflicts in the area. Um, and, uh, Basically, uh, now it's just been completely abandoned, overgrown, and degrading, being taken over by animals. Mm. I also was going to ask you about your name, but you've already done that. So, I, <laughs> you know, I definitely heard some Eastern European in the name, and uh, there we go. So, Croatia. Well, I will say, actually, to be fair, no. Um, my last name is actually Eastern Polish. Okay. Um, my mother's name was Segedic, um, which is the... Um, uh, the Croatian side of the family. Um, now we, we haven't ever 
been able to properly confirm it, but um, it's our understanding um, that there's a very good chance that the Nyberg family name comes from the uh, lords of Nyberg, which were the um, I think they were called the Grand Defenders of Eastern Poland um, a long, you know, several hundred years ago. Um, kind of a cool family legacy. Um, but more immediately, you know, every family member we've been able to find has sort of a pretty spectacular history. It's part of what inspired the collection to begin with about writing about family history is, you know, thinking about the lives um, a lot of people, including myself, live right now. The lives people live 50, 100 years ago mm. are just so staggeringly different. It's, yes. uh, you know, mm. like, you know, basically, I'm not sure that the different generations would even recognize what life looks like to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. You know, with our, our our changes in our society, you know, with the pandemic forcing changes, I think people are thinking about those things quite a bit, you know, the way... Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, of course, you know, it's a free country, so a lot of people aren't changing much at all. But, um, you know, a whole bunch of people, including ourselves here, you know, we're just living differently than we did seven eight months ago it's an interesting change to be fair even the people who are um attempting to live as normally as possible i mean change is being forced upon them whether they like it or not Um, that's right you know take for example uh one thing i theater model is i I, i'll be shocked if it survives um so you know yeah these people were are trying to live as normally as possible but if they're that person who normal was going to the movies every friday night well that's just not happening anymore um so you know as as much as they resist it the change is happening to them and i think you know that's kind of the nature of historical change and social change it's either you move along with it or you find yourself clashing against it and bowled over by it it's phenomenal. Remember, you remember those days of going to the movie theater and you just sit down with a bunch of strangers. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's even thinking about that. And you just—it's <laughs> just a, a phenomenal thing, the the change that we're witnessing. And you know, tell me about this. Do you have a couple favorite poets? Because I do. I got a couple people that kind of blow me away. Who are a couple of your favorites? Oh Lord, that's a big question. Um, so. Uh, probably, honestly, my all-time favorite is um, Arthur Smith. Uh, he has uh, fairly recently passed, um, about a couple of years ago now, I think. Um, but uh, he was my my mentor as an undergraduate and a graduate student. And, um, you know, of all of the people that I've ever encountered, both in the written word or in person, um, he's had more of a profound influence on my work um, than anyone. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I think my my favorite collection that I've read in the recent past is um, Patient Zero by Tomas Morin or okay. Morin. Okay. Um, it was uh, it's a, just a, a striking uh, collection that uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those that gives you chills while you read it. Um, also, a big fan of uh, right now of Seth Michelson. Actually, was talking about um, this semester few of his poems from his collection eyes like broken windows uh this semester with my creative writing classes and uh, he made quite an impression on our students um Hmm. and uh i'm hoping to i'm actually thinking about trying to assign uh, the whole book in an upcoming semester so hey it's not super recent at this point but you remember rupee core's milk and honey a couple years ago a student gave that to me and um i don't know really into it and i know she's got a follow-up at this point but (laughs) there's a lot of great stuff out there and you mentioned teaching and obviously you teach creative writing is it is it hard to be a poet and teach creative writing or do you think they complement each other 
I, I'm going to have to go with the, the latter. Um, nice. You know, there are certainly times when it can be a little bit distracting. Um, but you know what? Um, it has so many benefits in terms of uh, in terms of writing. So in the simplest sense, it causes me to continually search out new poets to be able to introduce my students to um because if nothing else you know yeah i can keep teaching the same things year in year out but mm, um mm-hmm. you know th- it's going to hit the point where i'm not inspired by it anymore and so um you know i'm not going to be inspired in my teaching of it um i generally find that any given piece is a shelf life of two or three you know class uh, you know semesters um after that it starts to feel stale to me as a teacher um but then you know the truth is that uh, i find myself consistently inspired by uh, student work as well mm. um you know uh certainly we get all level of writers coming through our classes so you know there's different people are on sort of different stages of their journey than others but um you also get a pretty you know stunning variety of perspectives um you know uh it also helps kind of remind you of how things that i might take for granted as a writer now um you know looks startlingly new uh, you know this is what a good concrete image feels like this is what um you know a, a good simile or metaphor is um you know the the longer we use those techniques the uh, more sort of the more we sort of lose the wonder and invention of them unless we constantly remind ourselves of it and every time you see students kind of making those discoveries helps keep you in touch with um you know what it's like to really be inventing things mm. what would you say to students who think I need a gen ed course and I'm going to take creative writing because it's easy and you know, it's art. So everything is everything and anything, you know, so it's going to be easy. What would you say to potential students who are thinking those thoughts? Well, when I uh, teach creative writing, I teach it from a craft point of view. Um, You know, in a lot of ways, I see it as very similar to learning to play guitar or, um, you know, learning to uh, draw with um, oil pastels. Um, you know, basically from an instructor, instructor point of view, I'm going to focus on introducing the class to a wide variety of techniques. Now, conceptually, it is an easy class, to be honest. Um, you know, you can learn what, um, you know, an extended metaphor is and how it's different from a conceit. You can learn how that mm-hmm. differs from a simple metaphor. You know, the, the ideas are pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like learning to play guitar, like learning to paint in a new medium or something along those lines, the only way the actual mastery and application can come about, though, is through significant practice. And so I would actually say that there aren't any things that we do that are especially difficult in and of themselves, but I also do ask a lot of production from my students because I do believe the only way to develop skill in a craft is through assiduous practice. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, between both original compositions and then their critical work, my students do compose over the course of a semester between 80 and 100 pages of original material. And that's actually cut back from some prior semesters. So, Mm. you know, I think it's, uh, you know, if you can, uh, if you have the discipline to practice, then it's one heck of a smooth ride. Hmm, If, um, you know, if if you don't want to spend, put the time into just getting the work done, then you're going to struggle. 
Yeah, I, I get that with the horror fiction class. Sometimes people take it and they're like, man, I just thought we were going to be reading some some Stephen King stupid stuff. <laughs> and, and you know what I mean? It's a little bit different than what they expected. Having an incar- incarnation of a horror class one day myself. Uh. <laughs> oh, you should do it. It's one of those 2510s. It's, uh, horror is a great, interesting <laughs> genre with a lot of problematic people which we'll definitely get to but first you mentioned your classes cut back a little bit is that because of the pandemic are you kind of uh giving them a a smaller load because of you know what's going on i know i'm doing that but is that kind of the reason for it that was a consideration but also um i perpetually redesign my classes um you know i'm still looking for what i think to be the right way to teach it or optimal way to teach it. And I'll never find that. Of course, you know, it's just going to continue changing with the changing needs of students. But, um, but no, um, it used to, just for example, um, I used to ask my students to write um, a full critique of each individual student. And ultimately um, in the class, you know, the workshop method where they read all of each other's work and comment and critique. And um I had reached a certain a certain point in looking at student writing where I felt like um, the actual growth that was coming from that was a little bit more stagnant than I would like. And so rather than, for example, having them write an individual critique um, of all four students we um, read for a given day or three students, um, instead I started having them write a single critical essay that asked them to talk about commonalities or contrasts across um, each of the pieces for that day. So they would write one mm. essay about three to four pages long um, that talked about, um, you know, let's just say maybe um, how each different author built voice within their pieces. So they created a more cohesive critical work because ultimately one thing I wanted to keep in mind is that as much as I want to develop people as creative writers, really um, de- I'm trying to develop students in 2700 as part of a gen ed curriculum. And so I wanted to emphasize the practical and transferable skills that they would then be taking to the rest of their university education. And so um, I decided to um, prioritize um, quality and synthesized critical writing as opposed to focusing on individualized feedback for each member of the workshop. So teaching is a little different currently. <laughs> um, let's talk about that, you know, this past semester and the one before really, but this this whole idea of teaching during a pandemic. Um, are you doing fully online at this point? Or no, were you- actually. Okay, so you've been um, face-to-face. Okay. Yeah, my, uh, my uh, intro to creative writing class is actually... Um, were almost identical to a normal class. Um, They had a small enough class size that we were able to fit into a larger classroom to meet two days a week every week of the semester. Um, The only difference that I really faced was that um, I also had to concurrently run the class on Kaltura because of a Mm -hmm. significant Mm -hmm. proportion of sort of rotating students who would be quarantined for two weeks. Um, Yeah, right, right. it kind of became routine later in the semester where two or three students would just simply be online um, and, you know, would chime in at some points in the conversation. Um, I do feel there's a pretty tangible impact on the classroom conduction as uh, sort of systematically the class populations were getting smaller as more and more students got quarantined. Um, 
And uh, you could tell that there was a bit of a, a tension in the room from, you know, starting yeah. off with yeah. 17 students and then one week having 11 because six people were out in quarantine. And then the day we had nine. Mm. Um, but then, you know, it did somewhat normalize. And, you know, while I'm not sure it's a good thing that that felt normal, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was what it was. And uh, it, it it was surprisingly undisruptive outside of the oh, okay. more frustrating part of the masks and the way they interfere in getting to know the students. And don't get me wrong when I say this, I'm a huge proponent of masks and people social distancing, disinfecting. I mean, um, I'm pretty hardcore about that myself, but uh, that was one of those necessary frustrations yeah, where, yeah. honestly, normally, I'm not great with names to begin with, but I normally have the class down in three weeks, and this time it took about six, seven weeks before I felt like I actually had people's names, and the sad thing is, is right now, I'm not sure if I see those students next semester without masks after vaccines have gotten more embedded um, and things like that, or maybe, you know, next fall or whatever. But um, I'm not sure I'd actually recognize them. And it's a strange yeah, it's, feeling. It's, um, it's very possible you wouldn't. So we have these these neurological pathways and we associate so much of the face really is the mouth and the nose, which moves so dynamically when people talk to you. And there's less movement with the facial parts you can see. And you're exactly right. Sometimes seeing people on Zoom calls without a mask definitely <laughs> takes me a second our entire lives you know at least here in this country we're not accustomed to seeing that on a daily basis and um that yeah there's neurology involved something i'd add to that too actually one thing i found personally frustrating was i communicate as a teacher quite a bit through facial expressions um you know and one thing i realized repeatedly throughout the semester was i would do something like i would actually make a uh, sort of a, a signifying smile and then I'd be like, well, shit, they can't see that. Your <laughs> irony is no longer registering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it had, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, like to, I like to joke around. I like using yeah. sarcasm and things like that. I like using hyperbole. And I, I did actually realize that um, that can be potentially problematic um, when yeah. they can't see your, your corresponding facial expression. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, there's, you know, even teaching what is uh, sort of, best described as an almost normal class, there were some pretty weird effects on it. No doubt. Is is it hard to teach creative writing fully online? No, 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 not at all. Okay. Um, I, I actually, you know, I've, I've taught uh, fully online creative writing um, for, oh gosh, like four years now, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. I was actually one of the first instructors at UTC to, well, actually I was um, the first instructor I think at UTC, I think, that put together a fully online 2700 that was executed. I think yeah, maybe I Sarah that. Einstein might have run a summer session before I did. But otherwise, um, I know I was definitely up there on the first. And then later on, I actually did uh, get some emails from folks saying I was the only QM certified creative writing instructor in the country, as far as they could tell. Wow. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I actually, I got a few requests for people from people asking to see my my course and how I designed it to pass QM standards. Um, you focus on different things when you transfer it into the online forum. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, while... Uh, traditional 2700, the um, sort of interplay of critical conversation during our in-class sessions is definitely the centerpiece. One-on-one um, -on -one work uh, sort of became the principal focus. Um, 
Now, I, I will say, if you aren't willing to work as an instructor um, and you're doing an online class so that you can hit autopilot and kick back, you know, it's not going to work at all. But um, I actually appreciated that because I wasn't spending time in the classroom prepping class discussions, looking for um, that kind of stuff that I could focus exclusively on working individually with each and every student in the class. That's definitely, I've noticed that too. There seems to be more individual discussion and focus than before so yeah i have noticed that also yeah and i i enjoy that i mean i I love critiquing people's work um you know i I really you know enjoy but you know the 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 critical process the editorial process involved and um yeah you know it's basically kind of like almost it almost felt like having like 15 independent studies to have an online course Mm. um but uh you know, and if, if, if that's for you as a teacher, I think it's actually phenomenally easy to teach creative writing uh, online. But, uh, you know, if you are somebody who really doesn't want to focus on that and you don't think your professorial strengths are in that, then it could be enormously difficult. So takes all types. Yeah, and you're a movie buff and you're a poet. <laughs> so does that mean you love the movie Dead Poet Society? <laughs> you know, a funny story about that. When, I love um, it. I can't. I watch it maybe once a year. I just love it. I have to admit, I I, I did love that movie. Yeah. But then, um, in uh, I don't know. This was probably about 1998 or 1999. I was taking a fiction class at University of Tennessee Knoxville with Michael Knight. Um, and um, Michael Knight arranged as a guest the poet Sam Pickering to mm-hmm. come visit us. With uh, you know, you may know is uh, the author upon whom Dead Poet Society is based. Yeah, that's right. And I've heard it's um, loosely. I've heard it's very loosely based. It's, it's very loosely <laughs> because um, Sam Pickering conti- uh, pr- proceeded to deliver one of the most um, uh, obnoxious instructions in writing, oh, no. um, and no, which no. then concluded in one of the most offensive creator, uh, Q&A sessions I've ever heard in oh, my no. life. Um, oh, so, no. Basically, he tried he to explain it. creative writing as nothing but a purely mechanical process of outlining um, and outlining and outlining so he until is, the story was there. So he's Jay Everts Pritchard or whatever. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Game? So he is oh. the guy that the movie character of him is throwing in the trash. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And here's, here's the kicker of it, though. Here's the kicker. During the Q&A session, you know, we're, the class was already kind of disgruntled because nobody really liked the message. Um, mm. Then one of the uh, the women in class said so what advice would you give to women trying to break into uh you know the writing market mm. and he looked at her dead in the face and said i don't believe that women have any business in the writing markets mm. yeah it was like like the you know just Man. crickets and stunned Man. silence Man. followed that um yeah it was uh, one of the most awkward moments i've That's... ever experienced um as a student or teacher so he was um, <laughs> he was being he was being sincere when he said that oh yeah yeah i mean uh it, it was oh, like I said, yeah it, it was so awkward <laughs> that's really interesting when you contrast that to the fire and the uh the character in the movie you know it's, uh, oh yeah and you know it's funny because <laughs> as a story it's you know as a story i still love the movie and i think it's actually yeah, sure. you know i think it's one you know it's it's one that is true 
You know, yeah, it's yeah. not that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if the historical person is accurate or not. I think it does get to some important truths in how writing works and, you know, yeah. the passion, excitement, the willingness to look for new angles. Um, you know, I think that's all at the heart of creativity. So, so he, yeah, he didn't live up to the mythos. All right. So here's some mythos for you. I've got a student. I've, I've had a lot of students, really, who have like taken you before they've taken me and they <laughs> sing your praise. Now they often call you Professor Nagberg. <laughs> that, that's very common. Um, but they sing your praise. I had this one student who was uh, going on and on about your creative writing class. This is like three years ago. And he said, yeah, he's a great man. He's like a, he's like a real life Charles Bukowski. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting because you, you know, you're you're like this super kind, well spoken, <laughs> thoughtful guy, and you know Buke, you know. Uh, oh yeah. So it's interesting how that's what he kind of got from your personality. He thinks you're Bukowski. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, I do swear a lot in class, and I do encourage everybody to push boundaries in their writing. You know, uh, major message I want people to to always follow is the moment you start censoring yourself, the moment you uh, destroy your vision. If you think you should be writing about a personal experience, but you know you're afraid how people will receive it, then you know at that point, if you choose not to, you've damaged your creative vision. Um, you know, we do still have limits within reason, of course. Uh, uh, and you drink a lot too, you know, <laughs> just nonstop yeah, drinking. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's the funny thing is, uh, you know, <laughs> that's that's the funniest part to me in a way about the comparison to Bukowski yeah, is because, I like, I like I never drank. Right. Um, you know, even when I was younger, uh, like when I was like when I was uh, maybe seventeen, I think I had a really nasty experience with alcohol that I'm mm. pretty sure left me with serious alcohol poisoning. Mm. Um, and uh, actually, for several years after that, I could barely stomach uh, most uh, you know anything but beer, pretty much. Um, well, you were smart. And, you were smart enough to learn from that experience. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, but yeah, so like you know. Over the course of, like, I, I actually somewhere in, in my office where I'm at right now is at home. Um, I think I still have, like, a beer from a six-pack I bought somewhere at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> you're saving it. Just, just saving it, you know. Just, gotta, right, you just hang on just, to it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I, I bring up the student love for you because, it, you, know, it's to, you know, because of coronavirus, you can't come in here to the studio. But I'm surrounded by monitors right now. And on one of them, I'm pulling up your Rate My Professor page. <laughs> so I thought I'd you know, get your thoughts on just maybe two or three of these if you're down with that. What do you think? Sure, why not? All right, so we're going to RateMyProfessors.com. It's funny, a lot of teachers are like, oh, I don't really look at my RateMyProfessors.com. I don't, what, is that a thing? So <laughs> I know you're aware of it. Do you, uh, it has fallen off in the last couple of years. I think they got rid of the chili peppers and people cared a lot less. But yeah. uh, do you ever go to it? Do you ever check it out? I actually check it about um, yeah. once a semester. That's same here. Um, That's same here. There's always, like, I want to know what people think so I can maybe get some good feedback. But there's also this idea of you open up rate my professors with a little bit of self hatred every single time because <laughs> you, you want to be the one who's like nah whatever I'm not gonna worry about it. So we're going here to your page. We're gonna check it out. All right, we're back. I was up. kind of picturing that you were in your evil lair. Uh, well, you know, I don't know if metaphysics needs to be brought into it, but it is a dark lair. I, I do have a, a candle 
I don't want to say fetish, but there's definitely a bunch of candles in the studio. I think you would approve. But here we are on RateMyProfessors.com. We're looking up Andrew Nyberg. Now, 75% say they would take you again. Well, That's I won't pretty complain good. about that. That's pretty good. Here's the most helpful rating. One of my favorite English teachers of my school career thus far. Even if you don't like writing, he'll work with you and give you helpful feedback. I would highly recommend him for another class. Now, this has three down votes. <laughs> <laughs> That's that 25%, right? I, I think it's interesting, Rate My Professor. Do you, I think there's a fundamental difference between people doing Rate My Professor and those official ratings that we get, the course evaluations. I think there's a, there's a significant difference between these. Now, I do have a question about this one. Another one of, by far, one of my favorite professors gives a lot of work. His grading's very fair. Now, here's my question. It says here, he even gives his phone number, so you can text him questions at any time. Now, do you give your actual phone number to students? My cell phone number is on my syllabus. And that's your real cell phone. That's your, that's your main phone. That is my real main phone. Um, Can they text you? This says any time. Do you get any late night weird texts? So the rule is, and it's also <laughs> on the syllabus, that I do not take calls or respond to texts after 8 p.m. or before 9 a.m. They don't read the syllabus. Yeah, I, I, I'll admit <laughs> um, once or twice I actually have had to rebuke students. Yeah. Um, yeah for yeah. Uh, the most recent was in, I think it was in the spring, if I recall correctly, but um, maybe it was the fall. Um, it's, it kind of blurs together, but um, I did get a 2 a.m. Uh, text message um, to which I did respond, don't text me at this hour again. Mm -hmm. um, and then I sent a an email the next day answering the question, but then also explaining why it is not considered appropriate to text in the middle of the night. Um, but that being said, um, I actually, uh, um, you know, my email and response from my phone regularly too. Um, you know, uh, phone calls are a little less frequent and they reduced ever since I did uh, request the policy that they text me um, to let me know they needed to have a phone conference. So mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. was largely the, the result of a, uh, you know, the massive uptick in telemarketers. Um, it became impossible to oh know when gosh. it was actually yeah. a phone call I needed spam. to answer. Oh, uh, yeah. A spam call. I, I don't even answer the phone at this point. I have like a fake voicemail thing. It goes to the voicemail and it says, do, do, do. This is out of order, you know. I don't want if it's somebody important. I don't know. I'm just I don't want any car insurance, right? You get yeah. the car insurance calls. Oh yeah. So we are calling about the extended warranty on your vehicle. Yeah, it's time to go. Uh, yeah. It's time to hang then, up on them. Then there's the this is Linda from Chase Bank. Linda is very concerned about <laughs> your Chase Bank account. Oh yeah, yeah. It does seem like that has gotten a little better over the last few months to me. It's well, see, I, I block every number that those calls come from, which does actually help cumulatively yeah. over time. Yeah. But uh, I, it, it has died down, I think, a little bit lately. But all of a sudden, actually, in the last couple of weeks, I, I've had a bit of a resurgence of the car, the extended warranty uh, calls. Yeah, we bought a car like it was like a brand new car. And somebody they were like sending me letters too, like in the mail. Uh, it was like your warranty is about to expire, and that was like the first time I got that kind of uh, kind of spam scam. It's not really a spam. I don't know. Are those legitimate companies? I wonder. I really don't know. But um, I thought this car is brand new. The warranty is <laughs> fine. <laughs> now you know not everything's positive on rate. My professor does that make you sad? 
No. Actually, you know, I found one that is negative, and you have a yellow average. That's like the only one. Uh, <laughs> I've got plenty of red on mine. <laughs> I'm like a. They usually get. I'm like a 5.0 or a 1.0. People, you know, there's not many people in between. They either really like my stuff or uh, they regret wasting their time. <laughs> but yours are all positive. Which, if somebody's taking the time to actually go to this website and um it seems like it's still a thing but you know we're both kind of old so who knows although one <laughs> of your one of your one of your reviews says he's a really young thoughtful cool guy and um that's cool man when a 19 year old thinks you're young you know that says something <laughs> about your your ouvoir right that's uh, see, your, i just assumed that was you know one that was left like 12 years ago when i actually was still kind of young we've both been there for 14 years right? Is this your 14th year 15th yeah year? pretty remarkable how it's been a decade and a half at one job which i'm i'm like you i love it i love the job and i really have no plan to do anything else for you know another 15 years but isn't that crazy <laughs> we're we're at the halfway point Fif yeah. 15 more years yeah it is you know it it does every once in a while kind of catch me off guard just how long I've been at the university. Uh, <laughs> so here is a would take again. The answer is no. <laughs> and it's, 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 here we are. He's very passionate about English, unfortunately. And this is the crux of the critique right here. Unfortunately, an A is not given easily. <laughs> Look at that phrasing, right? That's some, uh, I like that. So he's not going to talk about you. He's not going to give you a subject. He's just going to say, or she, they're just going to say, an A is not given easily. They're removing that from you. It's a very, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful example of passive headlining. That right is there. passive right there. If you are taking him for a gen ed, you can find an easier teacher. <laughs> and even this, your one negative one says, although he's a tough grader, I have enjoyed taking his class and have learned a lot because of the feedback on opportunities. It says grade received B. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what some students don't get from our point of view. You know, a B is a success. A B is pretty good. Yeah, I talk to them about that uh, a B is not know, bad. at the start of every semester. That's, I, I actually do see a B as a compliment. Yeah, a B know, is above average. And C is average and meets expectations uh, for the college level. Are we in an age where, not just in the grades we receive, but are we in an age where we expect our lives to be excellent always, no matter what? I mean, if you think uh, about it, a lot of like, I saw a survey that asked like, I don't even know, 10,000 fifth graders what they want to be when they grow up. And the number one answer by far, like number two and th number two and three was like doctor, physician, those types of things. But the number one answer by far was YouTuber. See, I, I wish the number one answer was the son. Like they want to be the, <laughs> the son when they grow up. Yes. Okay. Um, that way they're aspiring as high as they could go. You know, high. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, YouTuber is that, though. That is their son. A YouTube, wow. People are making money, right? People are, like, getting famous. And uh, I found that very interesting. So I wonder if we're in a place where we're expecting everything to be phenomenal, no matter what. And then when we get our B or our C. And in undergrad, I made a bunch of bad grades up failed out the first time around so I, I didn't care though that was the difference but like i didn't care about getting the bad grades but the people who do i just wonder if the, the a like b is the new d you know yeah well know. no it, you know when you get emails about some <clears throat> from somebody who's uh, desperately upset 
about the bee that they got and they want to know how this could possibly have happened and things like that. You know, D, I understand somebody wanting to at least know if they don't somehow understand from the grade book, which honestly, I do think that there should really never be a reason why somebody is unclear about why they have gotten an F or a D in class. But, you know, you know, I totally understand somebody wanting to follow up on that because, you know, uh, there's some, you know, potential ramifications of, you know, that grade. Somebody got a B, though, instead of an A, and they're like, you know, how did I lose the five points? You know, well, it's didn't turn in perfect work and it adds up uh, you know I, I like to use the death the death by a thousand cuts explanation yeah right right uh, do you think that's getting worse over the last couple of years um I, I honestly like part of me wants to say that but i think on at the same time i think it's because i want to say it because it's what's happening right in front of me um because the truth is you know i, I can't remember a time as a teacher where i haven't had people trying to quibble with me over their grades yeah that's true um, that's true and you know you got a 97 mm. you know you're missing you, you've got some minor language issues there's places we could strengthen it you know i mean i I get that maybe you want to know that stuff, but why didn't you just ask me, where are the places I can polish the work? Not, why did I lose these three points? Question of what they're focused on. Yeah, the focus on the grade instead of the work. Well, you know, people, but we also are in danger of going down that road where we start talking about, you know, nobody plays outside anymore. And when we were young, we were outside all day and everything was better. You know, some people will do that. Like, (laughs) it's not necessarily true. We were playing Nintendo Entertainment System when we were young. We weren't, Always outside. I don't see a whole lot of change over the last couple decades, but I think you're right. You're getting at there is a fair amount of people who are worried about the great outcome than whatever the class is asking them to do. Your rate, my professors, is very, very positive. Do you think it's good they took the chili peppers out? Um, I mean, it's got to be good. That's got to be a good thing. It's probably a good yeah, thing. I mean, if nothing thing. else, and as part, you know, when <laughs> uh, when you start thinking about the overall kind of cultural shift that I think a lot of people are really wanting to see, yep. Um, yep. of just a general increase of how we respect our fellow humans. That's um, right. That's I really can't argue with nope. it. Um, got to get away you know. from the chili pepper frame of mind. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, is mildly flattering when you see it. But, you know, you know, the reality is that uh, there's something just inherently dehumanizing about it. There's no doubt about that. You know, things, <laughs> you're right. I mean, things are changing. And one thing I'd like to talk to you about, I know we both love weird fiction, <laughs> and we both like Lovecraftian horror and various things. You're into, you game also, right? Are you a gamer? Yeah. Clearly, the Cthulhu mythos is all throughout the gaming, especially the last couple of years. It just seems like yeah. this is huge. And I teach Lovecraft in the horror class. Um, as you know, you've got ghost stories in you know the 19th century. And then you have Lovecraft coming along, basically inventing horror, some people argue. So, but there's this idea of, you know, what are we, what are we going to do about this? So Lovecraft was so horribly, like despicably racist. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's well known. It's documented. It's horrible. So I, what, what, what do we think about that? I, just, I think, you know, and we can do it with other authors too, but how do you approach the idea of authors work that just, come from very racist and other problematic authors. What do you think about that? Well, you know, 
Well, something like, you know, something like, like Lovecraft, um, you know, I, I think some of the question is starting to think about the source of his, um, you know, the source of fear in Lovecraftian horror. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately, there's kind of two strains we sort of take from it. Of course, there's the sort of the classic cosmic horror roots that we take from Lovecraft of just sort of the brutal indifference of the universe. Um, mm -hmm. But then also, you know, one thing that's always stands out about Lovecraft's work is how much he works through, implica you know, implication, where, um, you know, you have the sound behind, you know, just out of sight. You know, you have the tentacle that you see, but you don't see the rest. And yeah. basically the idea is you have the fear of the unknown, which to Lovecraft derives from a fear um, and imagination of otherness. Yep. So, yep. you know, I, there is something intrinsic in people, you know, fairly primitively speaking, where, you know, we do have an... Uh, it, it can be fairly easy for us to be frightened by the unknown. Um, if on the very s most simplest level, the unknown puts us, um, you know, on our guard because we don't know how to react you know, so from a fight or flight standpoint, it's pretty easy to, you know, to be apprehensive when you don't know what's coming. And so, you know, a lot of that horror works because, you know, you're imagining what's there in the darkness, you know, what's there out of sight or beyond the veil or, you know, whatever sort of imagery you want to use. Of course, the unfortunate side of that is, um, you know, things like, you know, Lovecraft's racism are an awful application of that sort of primitive fear, where a yeah. lot of you know a lot of that kind of racism is really um, derived from categorizing you know a group of people as other instead of That's as right. self. Yeah. Um, and so you know on the one hand, you know, if if Lovecraft were writing today with the same level of racism, I think um, it would be a lot harder to um, negotiate. Um, you know, there there wouldn't be a framework that you could present it within that would help you understand. Instead, you know, it would basically look like somebody who's just simply hadn't learned a goddamn thing about the last hundred years. Yeah, um, right, but right. you know, looking at it from his point of view, what he, you know, what it seems like he may have, you know, what he did was, you know, he he tried to understand what his fear was, and you know, ultimately, it, you know, as long as he sort of understand the irrationality of it and that i don't know it's you know even even trying to frame a defense of lovecraft it's hard to defend him it's more that oh, i think yeah, we it's... can understand him and see um how his work speaks about something about human nature that fear of otherness and then how we see it presented in a horrible distortion of things like his racism yeah it's, it's problematic even putting him in context of his time it still it doesn't work out like people you read Hemingway and his time, you know, then, you know, he, you know, while his treatment of women might be, but whatever, but, uh, you know, Lovecraft supported Hitler in yeah. the early part of Hitler's rise, for instance. Yeah. I mean, there were even people at his time who were like, you know, Lovecraft, I'm pretty sure I need to <laughs> look it up. Pretty sure he died in like 39 or something. But the idea of him kind of supporting this, this rising leader that even at that point, a lot of people were worried about the nationalism and, so even in situating him firmly within his time and not applying our values to him, he still he still falls short. So I've yeah. seen I've seen a lot of people will like just say, listen, focus on his influence of the work, you know, the cosmicism theory and you know those types of things, uh, basically inventing cosmic horror. Those things are 
or the things to focus on and try to divorce it completely from the the person so you can, you know, see Lovecraft's works influence without necessarily, you know, holding up the person as anything positive. But it's just a tricky thing is there's no easy way out of it. Either, you know, you don't teach him or you do. And there's just a lot of ways to, you know, navigate it and a lot of incorrect ways to navigate it. So I just find oh, it an interesting. It's just the Lovecraft problem is a big problem. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and I will say though, uh, there is some, there is some validity to the idea of focusing, focusing exclusively on the work and not the person, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, just a simple analogy you could draw is, you know, let's just say, um, you know, instead of being a writer, you know, Lovecraft had, you know, invented the polio vaccine. Um, yeah, good point. and you know, it had every bit, the level of effectiveness, the polio vaccine we all know and love has, um, you know, at that point you would have the argument, um, you know, so would you not take the polio vaccine because it was generated by or invented by a person like that? And, right, yeah. you know, that yeah. would be a mistake I would say, but you know, I, I, at that point, if you adopt that, it's still it's worth noting the problematic nature of the author. So, you know, you look at the merits of the work, but then you also consider the context and what that does. It's an interesting thing as we move forward in our culture and look back on these things that have been canonical and there's, there's no shortage. I mean, he's not the only one. There's no shortage of anti-Semitic and racist authors who are canonical oh, Lord, and yeah. well-loved and there, there's just no shortage of that stuff. So it's just an interesting thing at, from, you know, teaching lit and teaching writing well, that we have I, to, we have to think about. We should think about it. I do think though, that's also the place where also making proactive and progressive choices in curriculums is crucial. You know, on the one hand, you know, because it's, it's different to teach Lovecraft and a whole bunch of other, you know, racist or anti-Semitic or misogynist uh, people and make literally like that the entire curriculum versus, yeah, you know, right. what it's like to take somebody like Lovecraft and then place them in, um, you know, the context of a class that also teaches the works of someone like N.K. Jemison. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, right. when, when, you, when you start having that full diversity and um the varied voices you do get um a better balance and a better understanding of what it is you're really handling so do you see a a question or a solution more of broadening the canon instead of taking things out of the canon i i I would say so um i think that there are some works that um you know uh could potentially be um like i don't necessarily think it's wrong to to remove things from the canon because there are some older works that do cross some pretty serious lines yeah um you know but uh, for the most part uh you know i i would uh, you know sort of agree yeah, the uh, broadening the canon and making it more inclusive and representative is the way to go yeah you know we never wanted to silence the mainstream media you know we never right. wanted to ignore all of the issues that get raised in the mainstream. It's just, we wanted to make sure that the um, voices that were underrepresented underrepresented were there too. I'm glad you brought up Awake and Engaged. Um, That's exactly right. And, you know, we used to do, for anyone who doesn't know, we used to do sort of a documentary film series at UTC where we would just focus on various types of filmmaking that would go out of the status quo. A lot of it would be, 
Oh, we had social justice things. We had environmental justice things, animal ethics. We had all sorts of offerings. And that's right. It was about showing some films that maybe wouldn't normally be shown. And I definitely got a collection of emails over the years where people would say, you know, you need to quit pushing this left-wing stuff on <laughs> students. You need to show this film or that film. And they would always recommend, every time someone would say that, they would recommend some kind of mainstream documentary and that's right even stating the the purpose of awake and engaged as many times as we did i think some people didn't understand that this is for the marginalized voices that get marginalized and i don't know so i definitely got not i wouldn't call it pushback or anything but i definitely got a couple emails a year from people who thought we were just trying to push some kind of radical agenda and this was in like 2010 2011 you know we started that 2006 so it was it was way before the current cultural climate shift so i agree you know a lot of voices don't get heard so maybe we can bring some of those voices into the canon and i'm always on the look for non-white male horror writers to include in that class and um you know so many of the prominent horror writers are just you know they're just guys Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not like there's anything wrong with being a white male author. Um, and it's kind of, the, you know, in some ways, it's still the, you know, it's, it's like, you know, uh, it, that's it's a, almost a similar principle where what matters is that we give everybody the chance to be heard um, and that we recognize the merits where the merits are. Because, you know, there's a lot of books that have been overlooked for for way too long that are spectacular works, but they just didn't fit with the mainstream sort of. Uh, you know, sort of image that had been presented for so long. Well, do you have time to talk about UFOs? Oh, of course. There's always time to talk <laughs> so, about UFOs. Here on Dark Sky 12, there's a certain uh, small percentage of our listeners who are very into paranormal stuff. And basically, 2020 has had so many newsworthy things. Would you agree that we've had some phenomenal... Uh, let's just say X filey or I don't know, what could we say? Some some phenomenal news in the UFO slash things like that sphere that have gone largely ignored. Oh, we've had some pretty good ones. <laughs> uh, you know, like I, I think my favorite one that I sort of encountered lately was the um, that uh, Israeli government official who was swearing that uh, there is a galactic federation Mm. Um, you know, I've seen the that's kind of cropped up in various news feeds a couple times for me. Um, yeah, it crops and, up and it gets buried by by whatever else is going on. Did you see the Tic Tac videos? They call them. Did you see those Navy videos that no. were released? Okay, you can just T I C T A C, not Tic Tac. Uh, yeah, Tic Tac, like the old uh, the old mint. It, you may have heard about it. It was several months ago. Uh, these Navy videos were released that show some sort of cylindrical thing that looks like a Tic Tac, right? Like the mint. And these I Navy, think I heard about it. Okay, these, just what? search it. Search Tic Tac UFO video. This was released a couple months before the, the Department of Defense chimed in on this. So these pilots are tracking this object and they say, what is that? And they're talking about it. And you know, it's perfectly available online. You can go look at it and it's just moving at this unnatural way. And they're talking about it and it just kind of, you know, zooms off in this crazy way. And the department of defense said, yes, this is true. The, those are correct videos. And um, they basically admitted that it wasn't doctored or anything like that. And it's a phenomenal thing to see. And in the beginning, the thing that struck me and still strikes me 
in the beginning, one of the pilots says, my God, there's a fleet of them. Hmm. You can only see one on the screen, you know, that the pilots are tracking. But fleet means more than one, right? Yeah, yeah. And it looks, watch this. it looks like a little cylinder. I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe it's a drone. Actually, one of the pilots said, "Dude, that's just a drone, bro." So he's kind of—they're kind of calling him the bro guy. You know, he kind of got <laughs> famous for that. But it's unbelievable. And another official said, "It's possible that this could be." I don't have the exact quote with me, but you'll find it if you look it up. It's possible that this could be off-world technology, hmm. and it's not Art Bell right <laughs> it's an official from the government so it's unbelievable and um hopefully that's an accurate paraphrase of what's going on but that's a great example of you know how aliens might be the final boss of 2020 <laughs> no i can certainly see that being a possibility i think a lot of people on their uh, 2020 bingo have uh you know listed uh december as alien month um <laughs> i don't know what, what's your take on that do you think that there's intelligent life out there well, um, you know, if we take into scope the uh, size of the entire universe mm. uh, and what we've been, especially in conjunction with what we've been learning about, um, you know, the types of materials that are present on meteors, asteroids, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't see how there's a statistical chance that there isn't life elsewhere. Um, it's just too big. Now, it's too big. Of course, I don't know um, if you're, uh, you know, familiar with the Fermi paradox um with uh, you know uh, the i think the astrophysicist i think he was uh, fermi who had um you know posed the question if the statistical probability proves that there absolutely must be um highly advanced and mm. in, uh, intelligent yeah. life out there um then by uh, statistical probability we should be able to observe it therefore why have we not mm. um and mm. in order to reserve that or to, sorry not to reserve that to um uh, to validate uh, or to resolve, there we go, resolve the paradox. Um, he created what he referred to as the nine filters. Um, basically, it was the argument that in order for us not to have observed them in uh, our relatively close space, there would have to be um, some sort of exceedingly difficult barrier to cross that was preventing it. Um, so, you know, it was basically uh, looking at various different stages of development, with the earliest being things like um, the transit, the development of life. Life, the transition from singular, singular, single cellular life to multicellular life, um, mm. you know, the development of consciousness, the development of technology, um, you know, the development of the ability to leave one's planet and that kind of thing. Um, sure. And the development of the ability not to destroy each other. Well, yeah. And, well, and basically um, the argument is that um, either um, the fact that we haven't seen another species is really good news um, or really bad news, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, because either we're doing unusually good for a species and have made it farther than the vast majority if the filters at a very early level, or we are rapidly approaching the filter that destroys most species. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like the Drake equation. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. yeah. yeah that's what he was building from. Uh, that, that was uh, okay. sort of the, uh, the origin point. Uh, I was actually trying to remember its name. Yeah, the Drake um, equation. So that's interesting to me because the Drake equation is like, there, you know, there's all these variables and the, he's trying to get the number of civilizations with which humans could communicate. Mm -hmm. So it's like the rate of star formation and then like the number of stars that have planets and then 
the mean number of planets that can support life per star with planets, et cetera, et cetera, on the way on up to like the mean length of time that civilizations can communicate. So it comes up with this, uh, you know, of course, not all of those are identified, but for what it's got so far, they're estimating that just within the Milky Way galaxy, there could be millions and millions of these Earth-like planets. And of course, that's just one galaxy what I think Hubble has observed a hundred billion galaxies at this point. So um, they're finding that more and more of them than expected actually have planets within the uh, habitable zone. Right. Yeah, that's right. I saw something on that just a few days ago on earth sky, but yeah. it's so the Drake equation to me. So all of that is based on life. That's, you know, similar to us, right? Carbon based. So the idea of planets that can support life like humans. So I always like to think about even beyond that, you know, if we have that sort of bias that life is going to be like us, I mean, there could be, as our beloved Star Trek, you know, often discusses, there could be, you know, non-carbon based Silicon-based life form, the Horta. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There could be the crystalline entity, right? Exactly. So Um, this, this bias that we think that our selves has to be, you know, what intelligent life would be like. So if you take that bias away, and maybe there's microscopic intelligent life, maybe there's any number of things. So the Drake equation, and it sounds like the Fermi paradox as well, sort of has that bias built into it that life, we're looking for life that's similar to us. Well, and also it has the bias that, uh, you know, there's a a very simple problem with it too, which is that uh, we're assuming that we'd be able to, um, that they want to communicate in any way. Yeah. You right. Know? Right. I, I mean, really given even our very crude stealth technology, um, our ability to create things that render things virtually invisible. We, uh, picture a, you know, a species that's even what, 200 years more advanced than us. It's yeah. not, yeah. you know, I mean, why on earth would we even consider that, we'd be able to detect them to begin with. Um, exactly. Right. Right. You know, it reminds me of, a uh, this old science fiction story is in this big anthology. My dad had when I was growing up, actually one of the, uh, uh, alongside of the thing called who's goes there. Um, but there's a story in that collection called forgetfulness. And, um, mm. it was about, uh, this planet, um, and this huge ship arrives on the planet and it's a fairly earth like, um, species, you know, um, and, uh, you know, they discover all of these enormous, enormous, uh, massively advanced derelict cities that are completely abandoned. Um, and they also find that, um, you know, there's these really small, very basic and rural communities, um, you know, surrounding mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically they just, you know, they, they make the automatic assumption that um, these really basic communities are just, you know, are the remnants of a completely collapsed civilization that somehow mm-hmm. destroyed itself. And so um, they, uh, you know, request um, the opportunity to study and then uh, commandeer the cities for the technology. Um, and, uh, you know, the citizens of this planet, you know, decline. And so they decide that they're going to do it by force instead, um, assuming that their massive warships and weaponry, uh, you know, can overcome and subjugate these simple people. And then the leader of the simple people just takes out a single crystal and immediately teleports the entire mm. invading armada to the other side of the galaxy. Mm. Um, nice. And, uh, 
Nice. You know, that's that's the entire story. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. But uh, you know, we ha- we we you know, even when we think about you know technologies that may have evolved on similar line to, or sorry, civilizations that may have uh, evolved along similar lines of our own uh, to our own, we still then conceptualize them in yeah. extraordinarily human terms. That's right. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I thought that was uh, that story is a, a wonderful um, illustration of that. Um, yeah, I'm going to read that immediately. Uh, unaware, <laughs> I'm unaware of that. That sounds amazing. Oh, well, Star Trek. You know, the way to make an alien with Star Trek is to take a human and put some bumpy stuff on the forehead. <laughs> and I know they try to they try to carry, they try to deal with it with the universal translator, but everybody's speaking English. And also, whole planets like think of uh, Kronos, the Klingon homeworld. Uh, we have a lot of Star Trek fan listeners, by the way, so I probably am pronouncing these things wrong. But I call it Kronos. It's going to be good enough for what we're doing here. They speak one language. It's called Klingon. It's an entire planet. How many languages are just in India, for instance? I mean, we have so many languages on our one planet. Everybody in Bajor speak Bajoran. All the Ferengi speak Ferengi. So it's interesting. I know it's just a TV show, but... I think that gets at the way we we think about, the way we conceptualize uh, the fascinating question, is there intelligent life out there? Is we imagine highly advanced versions of us that look a little bit different. And then we simplify them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because... (laughs) Well, that's the thing about horror lit horror literature. I like. Uh, I spoke with Matt Guy about this a lot. This is a bad paraphrase, but he would put this much better. He said, "If you want to learn about the problems of family and poverty, you can read Charles Dickens. If you want to learn about how to deal with, you know, somebody trying to find their true love or you know whatever, they can read Jane Eyre, etc." He said, "But the issue why he likes horror is because the problems it presents. If you think of some of the uh, cosmic." problems in the Cthulhu mythos there's no it's existential because there is no way to deal with what they're facing because like you said a few minutes ago it's a completely unknown entity Mm -hmm. if a creature such as Cthulhu who's doesn't hate us it's just so huge and so different it may not even be aware of us like the way we might step on an ant as we're walking to the car we don't hate the ant we just don't even we can't even perceive its existence so if that's what's going on with some of the cosmic horror and other types of weird fiction, uh, it's just such a non-knowable, non-solvable problem. And that's what I really like about horror, a lot of horror. Well, and it's what me, I like it, about the out there, the life out there question too, because we can discuss it all day and we can observe what we can observe, but we just don't know. And I like that. Well, and, you know, at the end, you know, in the end, of course, it comes back to uh, that very basic assertion from Socrates, um, which is, you know, if I know more than anybody else, it's mm. only because I know nothing. That's right. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways, I think that is also that's that's also what draws me to a lot of the horror genre, especially, you know, and I'm not talking, of course, the sort of the the schlock um sort of you know canned creature mm, horror where right, you know right, you're right. You, you know basically the entire mythos is established and you're just watching it play out in different iterations right you know when you are really looking at um you know especially cosmic horror it's an acknowledgement of you know despite all we've known how poorly we really understand the universe and what's what could potentially be out there um you know, I think to some extent we see the opposite side of that in um, the wonder you see in a lot of science fiction. Um, you know, uh, 
things like not too long ago, I was reading about an entire planet out there that's uh, one giant diamond, yeah, um, which yeah. intriguingly has shown up as a major feature in the science fiction series The Expanse by James A. Corey. Mm. Um, you know, so we see that wonder of the universe um, and, you know, th- like the positive side of fascination in pieces like that. And then you have, you know, Lovecraft. You also have, um, you know, the Alien series, the books, you know, Annihilation series by Jeff mm-hmm. Vandermeer that mm-hmm. also look at the horror of the wonders of the universe. Um, yeah, and, I remember. Uh, I remember first time I read his that first Area X book. What is that first one called in that trilogy? Annihilation. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, I remember. I that love scene, that book. That scene where they when they go down into the tower for the first time. I remember reading that very quickly and then just stopping and reading it again. Just uh, really, I definitely liked the first book the best out of those. Oh, yeah. Well, the first book, I think, was, you know, it was actually kind of a standalone masterpiece. Um, Mm, You know, I don't think it needed sequels or further explanation. You know, it's one of those pieces that was it was inscrutable, but it was also brilliant as a result um, where it had so many things that implied, but, um, you know, refused to to confirm. Yeah, Um, right. But uh, I can reread that first book. Uh, you know, I actually, I just reread it like three months ago, um, and I'll probably reread it again in another six months. Um, yeah, I don't think I'll know. reread the other two, though. I like nah. them, but it's cool, the idea of, what about that scene? Do you remember that scene where he just looks up and the guy is on the shelf? Do you oh, that? yeah. Oh, that <laughs> creeped me out for a month. Uh, there's there's great moments. That was good. And yeah. uh, the other two books, I mean, you know, the whole sense of just feudal inevitability of the whole thing is pretty striking in and of itself. Um, you know, uh, the utter unstoppability of the, uh, you know, the of destruction. At the same time, I think the first book knew what it was doing, and it just did it so damn well yeah. that uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually kind of happy to reread that and you know over and over as a, as just a standalone piece. Well, I know time's flying, and I could go all <laughs> night, but I do. There's one thing I know you might agree with, but we're talking about the way these things have made their way into literature and art. But I just think one of the greatest things dealing with what we know and what we don't know in human nature is lost. I can't help it. Uh, lost the TV series, which I know you are a super fan of. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I was going to ask you, I haven't seen it in a long time. Does it hold up? Do you rewatch it? For me, it's more of it goes in the past, and I haven't really revisited it. Does it hold up when you revisit Lost, or have you revisited so- it? You know, I, I, I rewatched uh, the majority of it, uh, I don't know, two years ago, I think. Okay, well, that's um, pretty recent. That's pretty recent. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say that, you know, season one holds up, especially since it is sort of building on, a, you know, what is a, just a fundamentally timeless survival narrative. You know, mm-hmm. yes, it has its science fiction elements, but as a whole, it's really just the classic desert island story, you know, and it looks yeah. at basically the cross-section of characters as a microcosm of social dilemmas. Um, and so that first season stands alone. Uh, the second season, I think, does also still hold up. It's got a little bit of cheesiness because they had some limitations, I think, in terms of 
of budgeting, yeah. despite yeah. it being you know hugely budgeted for TV of its time, you know there is sort of the TV set feel to some of the stuff. Mm. Um, but that being said, it is really successful in dealing with some pretty substantial existential questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and you know, honestly, wonderfully, eloquently boiled down in some you know to the things as simple as what happens if you don't push the button. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, it's it is a wonderful question of sort of uh, you know faith versus you know uh, assumptions about reality um season three um just as it was when it aired is um honestly a boring pile of crap um <laughs> you know it has a couple of standout when they're in the cages has, they're in the cages right yeah you didn't like you know, the cages well, it's 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 not that I didn't like the cages in and of themselves. It's just you know you could feel them padding out the season. Yeah, I remember you know, that was the Sawyer and Kate stuff too, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah, um, I didn't care so much. About and that. yeah, basically, uh, you know, it was very elliptical in its plotting, where um, you, it kept making you think something was going to happen, and then no progress would be made, um, or the progress yeah. would be so minimal that it really didn't justify the runtime of the episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Season four actually sort of returns as a really well-structured, well-conveyed um, season. Um, it's very tight. Um, yeah. There's no wasted space anywhere in it. It has the same sense of mystery that you had at the beginning. And then, it honestly, after that, it goes back downhill. Five. Uh, I didn't like five and six when they aired, particularly. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I, remember, know, I remember we were talking about uh, season six, like in the office, when it was mm -hmm. happening, we were both watching it live, but they caught flack over season three. I think season four was uh, revamped and stronger because they, it really was. They caught a lot of crap over season three. People felt let down, right? The the first when you first watch the first two seasons of Lost, it's a phenomenal experience. Oh, I mean, absolutely! I couldn't wait. There were it wasn't Hulu back then. <laughs> yep. I couldn't wait. What was the day it came out? Was it Thursday? I don't remember the day. I think it was Thursdays. Yeah, we. I, I used to have lost uh, watch uh, watch parties. I'm um, starting in uh, the beginning of season three. Actually, that's right. In your old loft apartment, right? Uh, I'll take, no, I've never lived in a loft apartment, but uh, okay, that was someone else. Then that was someone else. But the thing is, somebody used to do Lost in the Loft. Somebody on nice. The first two seasons is a phenomenal experience to watch for almost everyone. And then season three came, and I still liked it okay because I was just I liked the show so much. But people yeah. people were very angry, and it's the same way with that show Carnival. If you're aware of that, the HBO oh, show. Oh yeah, back, I, yeah, we've talked about that. That's another yeah, amazing. I actually show. really liked that one. Yeah, Brother Justin Forever. But oh yeah, but yeah, Lost season three came out. People were mad. Four was pretty good. I don't know. It's uh, I just haven't rewatched it. I don't know. I feel like uh, I might be let down because I still. I still revere it in my memory a lot. Well, like really, you know, seasons three and six are the particularly weak links. Um, mm. You know, six because it just didn't like it. It just wasn't satisfactory. Um, too much of it, I think. You know, like uh, you know, basically the character conflicts that occurred in season six were were largely recyclings of you know. Um, the prior seasons or they had become artificial too complicated yeah, and, yeah. and had lost their humanity. Um, uh, know, yeah. Uh, I remember wanting more. I wanted more out of Jacob. I remember that. Yeah. 
Well, I, I mean, both realistic. him and the Men in Black. You know, they yeah. they just they they weren't as uh, you know as magical as you know we wanted them to be. I bet we can empathize though, because think about what if you had this amazing first couple. Say you had an amazing novel where you're hinting at all these amazing things that people are interested in and you're just saying oh this is going to be something you got to wait and find out i wonder if the writer sat around after season two and just said well, what are we going to do now well what, what now so <laughs> in season three um uh, you know what started happening was the writers and you know abrams and stuff like that you know they all started saying that there are answers you know we've That's known right. the answers from the beginning i don't so believe they that. created this yeah. expectation what i liked about annihilation by vandermeer is no matter how much <laughs> i wanted there's no answers, answers there's i no didn't answers. feel like i'd get them yeah um well th- th- there are actually some answers in book three um, of the Southern Reach, um, they do at least explain, you know, what Area X is in a very concrete and tangible way. That's right. That's um, right. But um, you know, like, really, that's actually some of the reason why I'm not as fond of the whole trilogy because I didn't feel like I needed that answer. And yeah, you I don't want to know. You don't. I think culturally, yeah. you know, we want to pull away the veil a little bit too much. Um, I think it's partially because the, you know we do. And this is coming back to the whole Lovecraftian thing again. You know, I do think that we inherently find the unknown unsettling and disturbing. Um, mm. And I think we, I think we actually can, you know, can take that to even things like the stories that we read and, and enjoy, where we just want everything answered and spelled out. In my creative writing classes, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable how much time I have to spe- spend discouraging um, student writers from epilogging their pieces too heavily. Yeah, right. Um, right. You know, you're reading a six-page short story that t- the last two pages is just explaining how things turned out for people. And, yeah, you know, right, I mean, right. you're answering narrative questions that people have, but, you know, they're not the questions that we needed to know in order to feel like the conflict was resolved successfully. Um, well, yeah, you know, we have that natural thing like, all right, so I have this comfort or I have this ability. I'm very comfortable with in certain realms. If you take the realm of religion, for example, for example, if you take the realm of religion, I'm mm-hmm. fully comfortable with not really knowing uh, what the whole God question might be. Yeah, me too. I don't really know. And it doesn't bother me that I don't know. So, and I understand that's kind of a, uh, that that's a little bit of a, a minority thing because you know, I'm not closed off to the thing, right? I'm not a devoted atheist, but I find certain topics like religion, for instance, people often, there's this natural need to know what's going to happen after death, to know what God is and to know those things. And that's just one small metaphysical example, but there's this tendency in humanity where we need to know what happens to the character at the end. (laughs) We need the epilogue. So you're saying you're Mm -hmm. encouraging people to forego the epilogue and allow us some mystery and leave the character's future unwritten in some way. Yeah, because that's what people want to talk about. And, you know, honestly, the truth is, we, you know, take a look at, at Game of Thrones, Okay. You know, what drove people through that piece was the endless speculation about what's going to happen, what's going to, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the ending, as crappy as it was, you know, <laughs> part of the problem is it also just provided these very neat 
story, you know, standard storytelling endings for every character, pretty much. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, it was that's a right. very, it, it was super simplified. And you know what? Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. There's nothing left to speculate on. They tried to answer every that's question. It, yeah. and so the end result is you leave the story and you're done. And I don't think that's how people want to feel. That's not, you know, we want th- to carry things with us. We want to linger with things and draw meanings out of them and speculate on the details. Yeah, um, yeah too satisfying an ending. And, you know, basically you're done thinking about it from the authorial point of view. You know, that basically ensures that your audience doesn't need to read more. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, are, speaking of Game of Thrones, are you aware of that fan site called WatchersOnTheWall.com? In a vague sense, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, I've got an episode coming up with the guy, Oz of Thrones, is his sort of really? Twitter. Yeah, he's coming on, and we're just going to do a whole Game of Thrones discussion. Um, it's interesting. He's He's what they call the Unsullied, which is someone who has seen the... I didn't know this until speaking with this guy. So if you're an Unsullied Game of Thrones fan, what that means is you have seen the television show but you have not read the books oh wow and if you're sullied it's the opposite so uh this guy kind of manages the unsullied realm on watchers on the wall and he's one of the owners and creators of that website so i'm looking forward (laughs) to to that but do you even care at this point if martin brings out more books um i I would actually i'd like to see it because i know that me too i'd read it i know that the books had diverged where the show had diverged substantially from the books towards the end. And while I know that they were working from a general outline that identified principal plot points that had to occur, um, you know, I, I do think there's a, a very different experience in them. And I think in the end, you're really looking at two different stories. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll say I would definitely read them. I definitely have an interest in them. But I will, I'll also admit I don't have the same level of excitement for him that i used to um you know i used to follow martin's blog i used to look at you know actively google you know for news of martin people that talked to him at conferences and that kind of thing i really don't do that anymore (laughs) right 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 Uh, at this point it's like well you know if it comes out i'll buy it um if not then you know which i have to admit i'm not really sure i imagine him finishing these books at this point um yeah yeah but it's you know, getting, not, it's getting uh, less of a chance with each passing month, I think. More and more, uh, I, I become concerned that he'll end up with um, a uh, his his equivalent of the Dark Tower. Oh my, well, yeah. yeah. I yeah. don't know how you feel about those, but uh, I uh, love you know, the first three books. Yeah, yep. And, and I last... actually couldn't even make it through the fourth and fifth ones. So, yeah. um, like I read half the fourth one, got bored and put it down. Yeah, I, then, I did read all of them, but I totally understand. I'm sorry. It it took a it took a force of will to. to yeah, uh, yeah. Um, well, George Martin, the people, some people don't understand. Uh, like he's done so much before Game of Thrones. Like I think, in some degree, he's kind of this kind of contented artist, right? I mean, he was he's been active writing so many things and winning all the awards, you know, for so long. He's interesting for sure. So I'm looking forward to having Oz of Thrones on the show. But nonetheless, here's the truth. We could go on forever, but we're not, not going to do that. Uh, maybe we'll <laughs> need to do episode part two. Maybe we need to do that because there's other things on the list I think we could talk about. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm game for that down the road. 
But I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, tell us real quick again, name of the book and when it goes on sale. Well, the uh, the book is The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks. Um, it's actually uh, available for pre-sale right now. Um, okay. And I will say the Finishing Line Press is a collaborative press, and uh, they do base some of their um, print run decisions on how well the pre-sales do. So oh, we need I, to go I do buy tell people, okay. yeah, I do tell people if you you know if you do want to buy it, um, you know the best time to buy it is now. Um, but that being said, um, it does officially go uh, for sale. I believe the date is March twenty third, um, or it's either that or the twenty first when it ships out. But um, you can uh, you can find the listing though at www.finishinglinepress.com. Um, it's Andrew Nyberg. The goats have taken over the barracks. Nice, nice. And the more pre-sales you have, the bigger that first run is going to be. So definitely, exactly. if you're thinking about checking this guy's book out, buy it sooner rather than later. I know I'm sending Edith right now to go buy a copy of it, and uh, I hope you <laughs> will sign it. Oh, of course. But will you sign it, Ben Laurie? Will you use his name? Sure. I'll say it. <laughs> I had Ben Laurie on the show too, and it was like it just blew me away. I love that guy so much. Have you read Ben Laurie by any chance? I have not. Yeah, his probably widest read one is Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day, and he's. You should uh, when we get off here, you should send me that that title. Yeah, um, well, and a text well. message. Yeah, because um, I will totally check that out. Um, he's amazing. I, I actually literally just finished a book and was sitting around not an hour ago thinking, well, what the hell should I read next? Well, uh, he writes short fables, and the, the most fascinating nice. part—the most fascinating part of that interview—he, this guy, he's about to come out with his third Penguin release. Like this guy, wow, he's New Yorker. He's such a big deal, right? So I asked him. I said, "All right, from an outsider's point of view, when you get something published with Penguin, so like when Penguin is pushing your your book internationally, does your life change immediately? And how so? And he gave like the most fascinating answer that was just unexpected and i don't know if anybody likes uh ben laurie or interesting atypical authors uh you should check that episode out um anyways so i wish you a lot of sales and i hope it works out for you and i know i won't uh definitely want to get one signed but yeah man i appreciate you joining the show today absolutely no thanks for having me so what are you working on now man um, right now I'm working on a, uh, a cosmic horror novel, um, yes. called, uh, the, uh, it's called, uh, Galatok. And it's, uh, it, the, the name is actually a derivation of what I assume could happen with linguistic shift from the name of an Island in the Mediterranean. It was called Gali Otak. Okay. Um, it was nicknamed, uh, the naked Island, um, because there was almost no plant life on it. It was the home of a prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, where my grandfather was um, sentenced for um, uh, for basically speaking out against the Communist Party in Yugoslavia. Oh, um, oh. And, um, you know, uh, it actually had buildings exclusively dedicated to torture. Um, mm-hmm. But it was most well known, though, for its utter lack of shade, where basically the prisoners spent, you know, almost the, their entire time there baking in the hot Mediterranean sun. Oh, my gosh. Um, but uh, – 
the novel is actually set substantially into the future after a combination of pandemics and war have um, sort of set humanity back by a few by basically like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main character is the leader of an expedi- expedition being sent to an island uh, that ha- that um, housed a prison called the Galatok um, to find out what happened to a prior expedition that was going there to uh, survey it. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it actually does draw from, it's, I, I won't say it goes into actually a uh, Cthulhu myth, but it does draw from a similar sort of horror that built on, um, Eastern European folklore and mythology. Oh my um, gosh. and then with a little bit of sort of, um, post-apocalyptic vibes to it as well. Do vampires make it in there in any way? Oh, you know, um, that is a possibility, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but not not in any traditional shape, way, or form. One thing yeah, I, right. I've, I've done quite a lot of research into Slavic mythology. Actually, I'm a huge fan of it. It's pretty it's pretty fascinating. Um, they're, they're sort of bend on a lot of sort of common classical myths, but um, they do have something that's uh, called um, boneless vampires. Mm. Um, which uh, is uh, something I did take some inspiration from for um, part of the mystery of of the island. Um, but ultimately, you know, like a lot of horror, uh, you know, the real enemies, of course, are the people involved. Um, I'm much more interested in focusing on the characters in this piece and then having them operate in a backdrop of sort of existential dread that fuels um, their motivations against each other. That's you know that sounds about like you. That sounds good. That sounds about <laughs> yeah. I, I remember reading some of your other stuff and like characters were like inanimate objects and oh, yeah. um, I like that stuff. You know a lot of uh, Slavic mythology was Perun Slavic. Does that yes. ring a bell? Yeah. Okay. That's it, that's the only one I can think of. Um. Well, you got to know his counterpart Veles then. Um, that's his, uh, his so brother, Perun, the trickster guy. Okay. Gotcha. The coyote figure, so to speak. Well, he was, um, he was actually usually a serpent figure. Um, okay. but Perun was the eagle. Uh, then Veles was this, uh, well, he, Perun's the eagle that lives in the branches of the great trees while Veles is the serpent that lives among its roots. Oh, um, man. there's so many great, and, tre- there's so many great trees in world mythology. Yeah. Um, and in fact, actually, Perun and Veles are both mentioned in The Ghosts Have Taken Over the Barracks, and uh, Veles and, is actually the villain of one of the other horror novels I've written. Um, so, yeah, they. Uh, I'll definitely say I have wholeheartedly embraced my Eastern European roots as a source <laughs> for inspiration. Uh, well, uh, keep it up. I appreciate you calling in. Andrew Nyberg, the goats have taken over the barracks. Finishing line press. I appreciate it, man. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks for listening. Well, let me tell you something right now that Andrew Nyberg delivers, doesn't he? I'll also tell you something right now. If you are a UTC student or thinking about being a UTC student, you need to take this guy's class. His class is Philip Quickly. He's a great teacher, and hopefully, as you heard over the last hour and a half, he has an interesting perspective on all manner of things under the sun. So thanks for listening, as always. Go to the website, darksky12.com. Leave a comment. Let's talk about this episode. Let me know what you thought. Got any questions? Got any guest ideas? You can also... 
hit me up on Instagram at darksky12. Again, that's spelled out T W E L V E. All right, so I really appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate the sponsors. I appreciate Sourdough Cup of Joe for being the official coffee of Dark Sky 12. Some more episodes coming. Thanks for listening. <laughs>